Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our new investment banking correspondent, and also down the line we have George Dallas, who is policy director of the International Corporate Governance Network. Today we'll be talking about HSBC, left reeling by new revelations about its private banking operation in Switzerland. We'll also be talking about UBS's results, a mixed bag there. And finally, to Raiffeisen, the Austrian bank that finds itself with its own problems. First, though, to HSBC, which has caused rather a stir, Martin, over the past couple of days. Firstly, we got some rather juicy revelations about the bank's legacy operations in Switzerland, the very detailed revelations in documents that have been leaked from 2005 to 2007 about some of the aggressive tax planning that its private bankers had been engaged with. It brings up to date with some of that, but also where it's gone from here, because it's turning quite political. Well, it is. It's unfortunate for HSBC that this has come out in a UK election year, also with the US not far off from the election campaign, presidential election campaign, getting underway properly there as well. So particularly sensitive time. This story has been a long time in the making, if I can say that. But these files, which are, some are saying, you know, the biggest ever leak of confidential bank account details ever in the history of the financial sector, were taken from HSBC's systems in 2007 by Helve Falciani, a Franco-Italian who fled Switzerland and handed eventually handed the files to the French government. They've since found their way to many other tax authorities around the world, thanks to the then Finance Minister of France, Christine Lagarde. That's why they're known as the Lagarde List. And essentially, they detail more than 100,000 clients of HSBC's Swiss-based private bank, and most damningly, there are notes attached to each of those client portfolios, which were taken by the personal bankers at HSBC. And they note how some of those clients were taking out vast amounts of foreign currency cash in so-called cash bricks from HSBC's Swiss operations, which raises big questions as to why they were doing that, and also shows that they were actively selling and pushing tax avoidance schemes to their clients when Switzerland signed a pan-European deal to pay some of the tax that should have been paid on these unregistered and undeclared accounts. This is all extremely damaging for HSBC. They've come out with a big, long statement, which they put up on their website and, and given to anyone who's asked for it, saying that this was a very different time in Swiss banking. Things have all changed since then. Banks have been forced to take much more responsibility for the actions of their clients, and they have cleaned up their act at HSBC, and they've cleaned up their Swiss private banking shrunk it a lot, got rid of a lot of clients who didn't fit and weren't fully compliant. But there are still questions over it that the bank needs to answer. I mean, they haven't fully convinced politicians that they have cleaned up their act. 
there's this case of a compliance officer at the Swiss private bank. She was based in Luxembourg, who was fired 18 months ago, she says, for warning about tax problems to do with clients then. And that was her job. But she says she was fired because of that. And she subsequently won an industrial tribunal for unfair dismissal. And she was interviewed on BBC Panorama last night saying, you know, there were fine words from HSBC about cleaning up the bank, but uh, they weren't being put into practice. So Vince Gable, the business secretary, one of the most senior cabinet ministers here in the UK, has written to Douglas Flint, the chairman of HSBC, asking for a meeting and saying, you know, this raises questions as to whether you really have cleaned up your act. There are also questions about whether the UK authorities will launch judicial proceedings against HSBC as a result of growing calls for them to do so. France, Belgium, Argentina, the US have already launched investigations into HSBC. And there are big questions as to why the UK, which was the biggest source of the money that HSBC's Swiss private bank was managing after Switzerland, why the UK has um, been so slow to act. Well, let me uh, go now to George Dallas, who's policy director of the International Corporate Governance Network. George, thanks for joining us. One thing I wanted to ask you really was the extent to which this is an avoidable issue for HSBC or could have been an avoidable issue. There's been a lot of commentary today and also in the past when other things have backfired for HSBC, such as a huge volume of bad loans in the US household business, such as the Mexican drug money facilitation that HSBC was involved with, sanctions busting and so on. And this latest Farago, they all stemmed from acquisitions that HSBC did in the boom years and arguably uh, also a result of the fact that HSBC has failed to integrate them properly and, and supervise them. To what extent, George, do you think this is a governance problem that has been highlighted at HSBC? I think the points that you just read are very much a, a governance issue. It's not just making uh, an acquisition, but ensuring that a company that does this manages all dimensions of this, not just from an, a limited compliance and control context, but also in, in a cultural context. And it would seem that one of the questions that comes begging out of the, the Swiss cases and perhaps some of the other ones that are related to HSBC is, has the governance process really managed that cultural dimension appropriately? And I guess that dovetails with another dynamic, which I think is confronting HSBC as other banks, which is the fact that uh, I think the social expectations of banks have shifted over the years. And what, even if we all disapprove of this now, as I think many do and probably did, there's, I think, even less tolerance for tax avoidance as an accepted practice as it may have been in the past. So I think it's shining the spotlight to some extent on the fact that certain behaviors, if they're legal, still may be ethically dubious. And there may be cases here, I guess, that need to be explored in terms of the basic legalities. So I think all of these are governance issues and stem from the ability of a board to provide appropriate oversight over strategic activities such as M&A and their integration into a corporate home. Well, one of the other governance angles on that very point is that the acquisition spree that HSBC went through was led by its then executive chairman, Sir John Bond, who, of course, as chairman, didn't have to answer to anybody within the bank. This is a peculiarity of HSBC, really. You have an executive chairman and a chief executive. The dynamic has slightly switched these days. But I'd love your thoughts on that point. 
And also the related issue of the fact that historically former executives have been elevated to the chairman role. We mentioned Douglas Flint, who's chairman today. He was previously finance director. And actually some people have pointed the finger at him in terms of, you know, having been a senior figure at the bank at an executive level when a lot of these misdemeanors were happening. What are your thoughts on that point? Well, I think that the tradition of HSBC to appoint executive chairman from the executive ranks has been something that has been uh, subject to scrutiny by many, particularly in the investor community, for some time. I think it would be hard to, to say causally that this was a driving factor in this case. And I think time will tell as we see the extent to which this issue may broaden out into other banks. This may or may not expose the extent to which the you know tradition of a strong executive chair might have contributed to it. So I think it's a question mark. I think one of the greatest challenges from a leadership perspective is the whole hearkening back to the Chuck Prince quote at Citibank several years back that his institution felt like they needed to dance while the music was playing, even if they knew the music was bogus. And I think the question that banks need to think about is, are there other songs that they're currently dancing to that they possibly shouldn't be dancing to, or they may be doing so for the wrong reasons. And I think it does ultimately lead back to a governance issue in trying to have board members as well as directors be more attuned to the social expectations of banks and the consequences when this goes badly. George Dallas, the Policy Director of the International Corporate Governance Network, thank you very much for those thoughts. Well, let's move on to our second topic of the day. UBS published its full-year results early on Tuesday morning. Laura Noonan, welcome. As our new investment banking correspondent, you've debuted by looking at these numbers. They're pretty mixed, aren't they? Because there was quite a nice um, juicy dividend in there, but they've at the same time actually downgraded their forecast in some areas. Yeah, I think it's true that it was very much a mixed bag for UBS this morning. I mean, on the positive side, we did see a major increase in dividend. Shareholders who got a 25 cent dividend last year will this year get a 25 cent special dividend and then a 50 cent ordinary dividend. So we're talking about the dividend being three times what it actually was in the previous year. Earnings overall actually hit, so they actually beat their earnings targets in the fourth quarter, but they only managed that because of this very large gain for tax treatment. So when you look at it at a kind of operating level, which is how most people are looking at it these days, they actually missed expectations across every division bar their investment banking division, which actually beat. So the shares are taking a battering today. They're down about 5% now, which is around lunchtime. And people are very concerned both about the earnings performance in the fourth quarter, but also then about these comments which they made about various headwinds hitting the earnings going forward. Those include the very dramatic moves in the Swiss franc, which has appreciated considerably after they removed the peg in the middle of January. Then you're also talking about the impact of negative interest rates, and they're still talking about the potential for further costs on the litigation front. And they, in common with um, several other banks, have a number of items outstanding which could lead to big litigation charges again. So there are certainly a lot of things to drag down the numbers and people seem to be focusing on the negative far more than on the positive this morning. Well, if things look negative for UBS, I suspect Credit Suisse is even more challenged. They've got results coming out later this week. What are the expectations there? 
Well, Credit Suisse is in a different position because people are actually going into the Credit Suisse results expecting very little. So in that sense, ironically, they have a greater chance to actually outperform on the day because the bar is set really, really low. Credit Suisse has quite a challenge story. I mean, there is a broad expectation that they will either cut their dividend or that they will offer part of it in shares rather than actually in cash, which will be cheaper for the bank to do. They have a much thinner capital base than what UBS has going into this. And they also have a much bigger investment bank. So there are various things which make Credit Suisse's results are going to be more challenging. But there's definitely a far greater potential for them to surprise on the upside because expectations really are very low heading into Thursday. Well, we'll keep a good look out on that. Thank you, Laura. Let's move on to our final topic for the day. Martin, back to you. Raiffeisen, one of Austria's biggest banks, they are among probably the most challenged of Europe's banks, partly because of their exposure to problematic areas such as Russia. Their capital levels have been in question for quite some time now. Raiffeisen was supposed to report their results on Monday, first thing. Uh, They delayed that, putting them out after the market closed instead. What have we discovered? This is a bank that has been hit by a bit of a double whammy, really. Not only do they have the highest exposure to Russia, of any foreign bank. They also have a pretty heavy exposure to loans made to customers across Central and Eastern Europe and indeed in Austria in Swiss francs. And they have been affected by the sharp appreciation in the Swiss franc since the Swiss National Bank lifted their currency peg last month. So given that context, the bank had said it was going to announce a restructuring plan, and that's what they've done. They are planning to sell their Polish and Slovenian businesses, as well as its uh, Slovakian online bank. They're also planning to scale back by 20 to 30 percent their operations in Russia and Ukraine. And they are scrapping their dividend. They're trying to improve their capital ratio, which is at around 10% at the end of the year, up to about 12%. They've made a loss last year, a bigger loss than expected of 493 million euros. So they're in a tight spot. The key thing, I think, about this Austrian bank is that its ownership structure could be a bit of a problem. It raised 2.8 billion euros from rights issue last year. Many people expect that given all the headwinds it's facing, it may well need to do that again. But the problem it has is that it's 60% owned by a cooperative type group, a mutual ownership, which is ultimately controlled by about 1.7 million Austrian private individuals who've got their savings tied up in the bank. So there's a political sensitivity to any dilution of that group who presumably wouldn't be able to take up their rights in a share issue. So what do they do? Well, they have to cut costs, they have to sell businesses, they have to, you know, restructure, and that's what they're doing. Well, we'll see if that's been enough, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. Martin, thank you for that. All that's left for me to do is to also thank Laura and George Dallas, the Policy Director of the International Corporate Governance Network, and also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.